History Through a House, a look at British history through the doors of Longlands, giving you the facts, not just in the history books. With your host, Isadora Martin Dye. Hey guys, what's up? This is History Through a House. I'm your host, Isadora Martin Dye. In the room with me, you have my husband, Ben. Hey, I'm Ben. And our cousin, Adam. Hey, kids. All right, so you guys may have noticed that there's not been a new episode since I recorded the Black History episode, which means it's been a solid three weeks since you've heard from the gentleman hidden here. Um, that's for a couple of different reasons. I'm sure they're fine with it. Uh, yeah, I would be. I was. <laughs> <laughs> that's for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, it's been a really weird couple of weeks, I think, everywhere and for everyone. And uh, I don't know, I haven't really felt like doing this, which sounds awful, but I think everything's just kind of been getting on top of people. And somehow this podcast ends up being more personally whatever than the Legendary Tales podcasts that we record. Because there we're just kind of reciting stories that we've read, whereas this is more my own research, what's going on at our own house, and kind of it's more bantery and we're all involved. So it's a little bit different. It has been a really, really tough few weeks politically. Uh, I also fell and sprained my ankle, which has just put me in a real funky crank. Um, and then lastly, we did record this episode already. A real funky crank. We did record this episode already. That's the title of this episode. A real funky crank. <laughs> um, we did record this episode already, and I was finally feeling a bit more like I wanted to do stuff, and I went to go record, uh, edit it and realized that it had only recorded the first 14 minutes. Technical difficulties. So the boys have a very exciting, I don't know, we very could've... exciting response now we could have lied and just said that we hadn't recorded an episode in three weeks because as every single one of them has walked in for the last 20 minutes and said why is there a picture of hitler on your computer it is because i think it's really important to just really quickly after my black history episode which really important guys to talk about our personal heroes and one of dora's <laughs> personal heroes no it isn't <laughs> let's be real clear that is not where this is going Obviously, as someone who talks a lot about history and who's interested in history, people talk to me quite a lot about statues and them coming down. And I saw a post from Elizabeth Goodsall, a quote from her, who is in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is actually a newspaper that bizarrely I've referred to at least two or three times in our other podcast. Yeah. And I think it kind of sums up how I'm feeling about all of this, which is, and this is her quote, because she puts it much better than I ever could. There is a difference between recording history and commemorating it. This is why Hitler's heinous actions are well recorded and remembered, but there are no statues or memorials to him. Removing statues does not expunge our knowledge of historical offense. It simply means we no longer glorify them. I think it's really important to note that the Romans, which is what we're going to be talking about today, by no means had a spotless record on their persecution of Christians, their attitudes towards slavery, but what they did have is an interestingly woke attitude, I guess, towards race. And while I don't believe that we should ever ignore an element of history, we should never not stop talking about Hitler and the genocide of World War II, we absolutely should not be putting up statues. Statues, to me, are something that are reserved for people that we admire. And if they are put up, and it is somebody that we should not, admire they should be taken down and put in a museum where they can be given correct historical context 
Okay, so that's my little thing about what's going on right now. And now I don't want to record anymore because I just remembered how awful everything is. And that is why you haven't had an episode of History Through a House for a good three weeks. Sorry, just, what, what are we talking about? I just woke up. <laughs> All right, guys. So today we are going to be talking about uh, Romana British Villas and also... Uh, Villas? Villas. Villas. That's Spanish. Oh, okay. And also the... Not Italian? Not Italian. We're going to be talking about Romana British Villas and also the... Uh, historic sites that the Romans have left behind in Cornwall. And this is a very specific episode as brought to us by Adam, who was curious about how far the Romans actually got into Devon and Cornwall. And what they were really leaving behind. Because I think we talk about villas quite a lot in an abstract sense, but not in a very specific, like in a very specific practical sense. Got to bring it back to the Southwest. All right, guys, I'm going to be really good and give you my sources, because this is something that I understand I have not been great about. And I want you guys to please uh, understand that when I'm giving you information, it is an aggregate of many people who've put in many, many more years of research into this than I have. And what I am doing is giving you an aggregate of some different opinions. Although I will say that there's very little controversial to what I'm saying today. Um, very much we're talking about what's on the ground and what's being found. But my sources are archaeology.co.uk, englishheritage.org.uk, the Historic England website, which is also a .org.uk, Exeter University, because, you know, they got Exeter. Keep it real. Woo. Weirdly, Eagles and Dragons Publishing, but we'll get to that in a minute. Adam Alexander Javieras. You're welcome. Realmofhistory.com. And very specifically, I will say the realmofhistory.com. I'm not quoting them very much, but they have an amazing 3D animation of how a Roman house would have been laid out. So I do think that talking about the layout on a podcast is sometimes going to be hard to visualize. So if you want to know what we're talking about and see it up front, realmofhistory.com is a really good place to start. And it helped me definitely understand it much more of a practical sense and and reality is the house here wasn't founded in the roman era and from a practical sense we are going to be talking about what the foundations of literally what the foundations of this house would have been made out at longlands but it's interesting because you don't kind of get involved in something like this without being interested in all periods of history and all periods of architecture so longlands this week or less <laughs> last, last month last few weeks have been Quite busy, but a lot of it's been paperwork. Adam has pulled all the old electric out of the old house. Yeah, like 500 pounds worth. And by pounds, I mean dollars, not weight. Huge amounts of electrical cable have been pulled out of there. And he's also been stripping back wallpaper and doing a whole load of remedial stuff. I think I'm actually done with that now, too. So, And I think it's fair to say that probably as the old house, house stands right now, it's as close to the Tudor era house as it will ever be. Yeah. Yes. We also had a couple of different guys from the history, historical experts come to have a look around. One of them was Nils, who I've talked about in the past, who is kind of working for us to look at what we can do within the historic England listing. Um, And the other person was a guy from the Keystone Report. Now, Keystone around here is akin to historic god apparently 
if we tell people that we have a Keystone report on the history of the house, they suddenly stop everything they're doing and refer back to the report. I thought it was mm. Keynote. Yeah, you keep saying that. It's not. Oh. Keystone. Like the middle of a bridge. Okay, don't care. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> the V-bit in the middle of a bridge is yeah, the Keystone. I know. We talked about it. Okay. So the Keystone guy came out, and he actually cleared a whole load of stuff up for us. So he gave him historic justification for uh, running a brewery, which is really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about that. The uh, the Inglenook fireplace that I was going to like put a big old spit into and just roast turkeys over constantly because that's what I believe you would do that man cook fire man fire cook <laughs> fire man cook fire man cook. So, yeah, I was going to do that. And he was like, no, 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 this window here would have been like where the malt and the grains and this would have actually been like where they would have made small beer for the children. And and I was sort of like, perfect. Like, I like I'm going to put a brewery back. And then and then Isadora said, no. Can you imagine how cool that name would be? What? It's Longlands Brewing Company. Yeah, I'd be okay. James would be mad at me, but that's fine. Why? Because it's Burning Stump Brewery. It's the name of the brewery. My husband has long, long wanted to run a brewery called Burning Stump Brewery. I thought that was the cidery. It was everything. Cidery Brewery. James can come over here and throw a cigarette into a tree stump and light that on fire as well. That's probably true. (laughs) But that wouldn't make it long. I mean, a Longlands Brewery is is a good one, yeah, as well. James is a very dear friend of ours in the States who... I think cemented our friendship by nearly setting our house on fire. It's amazing how that works. Uh, mm. it, you know what? We're, we take all kinds here. Um, Arsons. So they also found oh. a clotted cream oven. That's actually super cool because I would have never in a million years if just sitting and looking at that in, in the wall been like, yeah, that's what that's for. And he walked in and was like, oh, that's that. <laughs> uh, we found, Ben found a new staircase. I like so I this is the one thing that I haven't done yet. We found an old staircase. Um we, we also found out that like the original Keystone report was slightly wrong. Yeah, so the original Keystone report was written when the house was fully intact and fully furnished. So it was Nils who suggested that we ask the guy from the Keystone to come back and give us a more accurate report now that the building has been Mm -hmm. stripped back so that they can really understand how the fabric of the building over time was arranged. And certainly staircases were a big issue, not an issue, a thing. Yeah, because the staircase we found wasn't in the Keystone report at all. No. Even though before we started taking that wall out, I said, that's a staircase. Yeah. Like He thought that the original staircase could have been the original clotted cream oven. That was in the Keystone report. Mm-hmm. So then when we found the original clotted cream oven, it made it very clear that the other one must have been a doorway and a staircase. Yeah, next to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing that sort of like threw me is that we've been we've been working under the precedent that there had been a minstrel's gallery. Yeah, that was something that... And he was he just sort of that threw that out the window. He was just sort of like... Never would have been a minstrel's gallery. Like, you know, there wouldn't have been a minstrel's gallery. A gentry house. Yeah, it's like, this is a poor old farmhouse. Um, so... He did point out a couple of places, like in what will be Ben's study, that there was another spot that a staircase at one point ran. So as we can figure out right now, there's been at least three or four different staircase positions in the house. Mm -hmm. He was really cool. It was really fun talking with him. Do you think that those staircases would have been going at the same time? He seems to think that the one in the study was the original one. That makes sense. It's one of the oldest rooms in the house. Yeah. And and it would have been going into what would have been the oldest Second story room the, in the Yeah, house. the first the master bedroom. Yeah, or first room. Um, then the second one would have been 
potentially the one that we found. The one that goes that would have come up from your kitchen. From the sitting room. Because it would have been an L-shaped building. And then the uh, third one would have been the sitting room. And then the fourth one, one would have been corner. the one that we're currently using. What about the one in the corner? Oh, third one. In your snug? Yeah, third one. That's the third one? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's quite a lot of options there. And it was really interesting. And I, it's hard to visualize, as I'm sure, as we talk about it. But maybe what I'll do... As soon as this podcast come out, maybe tomorrow I'll actually go into the house and I'll photograph all four staircases. Yeah. I mean, I always sort of like my big Instagram. thing is is I just want to ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, check out the Instagram. It's very cool. Instagram show notes as well, Dora. If you remember, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm always like into sort of like the like the house is a mystery, like it's a puzzle, and we've got to put the puzzle pieces back together. There were like a few questions. I'm sort of I just want to be like, what? Where is this, and what happened now? And one of them is the fireplace and what's going to be your office, the one closest to the road where they'd obviously robbed out all of the granite and replaced it with brick and then concreted over the brick to sort of hold that all in place. Are you sure they didn't? Because the pointing in that concrete semicircle is awful. Terrible. Are you sure they didn't just rob it from that fireplace, move it to the other fireplace, and then brick and concrete up the original? They would have both, I think, at some point had fireplaces. Okay. Um, At the same time. Probably. Okay. But I think what... What is interesting about those two fireplaces is that they would have almost certainly been two separate fireplaces. I think in the Keystone report it does say which one was earlier. And if I remember correctly, one of them is also the earliest recorded, one of the earliest recorded fireplaces ever. Okay. What? That, ever? I wasn't confused as to... In Hennick or of all time? In Devon. Oh, wow. That's pretty amazing. I wasn't confused as to them ever being two separate fireplaces. Oh, you meaning was one put in before? I, I meaning if one was built and it had the mm-hmm. the arched, beautiful stone yeah. thing, and then they took it out of that one, moved it. Why would they have done that? Why would they have taken it in the first place? And then like, so and then I understand what you're saying it? now. So they they didn't do that number one because if you look at the fireplace itself, which the which one, the, the one, one that hasn't been robbed, okay, it's. It's still intact. Well, that one's original as well, isn't it? And it's yeah. got the the lintel on it. It's got the, the lintel, like they didn't change the lintel size. So like did it just get repointed? The arch point? goes above yeah. the okay. floor level. So yeah, they just repointed it terribly. Okay. So we're probably like we're going to probably have to chisel out that very delicately chisel out that new concrete to let the lime mortar breathe in it, and it's then it'll be really miserable. Yeah, it'll be okay. And no, no, and then the one to the right is like that would have had a wooden lintel, and now it's got a granite lintel. Yeah. So, like, somebody obviously, like, was like, this is a beautiful fireplace. Let's steal it. Thank you, Charles. All right, guys, which brings us neatly to Romano British Villas. Can we just talk about the house for the rest of this episode? (laughs) No, because then we'll have no more series left to do. But we will, because we'll have to put the house back together at some point. (laughs) We'll get to... Which we're nearly getting. I think think we should put it to a vote as to who thinks I should put a brewery into the house. I already said yes. I said a thousand. Two to one. It's two to one so far. (laughs) Why have more stock, obviously. So, coming back to Romano British Villas, one of the major reasons why there aren't many standing is because all of them got robbed. Because why wouldn't they? The Romans left. Like our house. Yeah. The Romans left, and they got... Uh, and the Brits needed stone to build, and they took it. There wasn't okay. So going back to those fireplaces, just really quickly, <laughs> okay. the one that is robbed is older, right? That is the older of the two. The one that's closest to the road. The one that doesn't have a beautiful stone design. I don't think so. I'm, to be fair, like if it is, we will find out the answer. 
I mean, the the question really is right. Like, did it did it start off as one farm built? Like, did it start off as one building and then grow into three rooms, mm-hmm. or was it built as like a three room longhouse? Yes. And I think it was built as a three room longhouse. No, <laughs> I believe it with to the bottom of my heart and soul all historical evidence says that you are incorrect benjamin uh actually you know what it's a really good point it was uh i mean it is originally an anglo-saxon it is originally an anglo-saxon foundation yeah and so that's the only reason i, I think in here. two weeks three weeks maybe we're going to start talking about anglo-saxon building what we about the dark right ages there. anglo-saxons are the dark ages what about the the darker ages but the bright ages. I think we're just in the dark ages. There's no dark ages. Just means there's no information. We're in the mental dark ages right mm. now. I thought there was like a volcano and like they blocked up the sun for a while. That's exactly what happened. People couldn't write anything because it was so dark. Come on, Pompeii. So sure, we will be actually getting into Anglo-Saxon foundations and what Anglo-Saxon houses would have looked like, and then we can come to our own conclusion. Okay, sorry, house foundations are like foundations of the community. Yes. Both. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent again. Okay. I will say that the first recording, we didn't go on this tangent. No, I think this is a bit more interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go into Romano-British villas. All right, I'll wake up in 45 minutes. All right, so villas generally are just basically a word for a house. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a villa is basically a house. Uh, it is used to describe not just the house. I guess the thing about a villa is it's not just describing the house, it's describing the estate. Okay. It's not a style of house. It's not a style of house. A villa is no more a style of house than, say, a house built in the 2010s. Every house is going to have a similar rough idea as to what it looks like Mm -hmm. based on what is considered modern and necessary for living. But in the same way that you wouldn't be able to walk in 10 houses and find the bathroom in exactly the same place or the... It's going to have the same layout. If you walked into a house now, you'd find a downstairs bathroom, a sitting room, probably an open plan kitchen dining area. And that's the same with a villa. They're not going to be in exactly the same place. The toilet's not always going to be under the stairs. but It never should be. Almost all the time it is. We're going to talk about kind of... Villa's toilet should be outside. A bog standard. No, Romans have plumbing. Bog standard. Oh, yeah. That's why they had clay plumbing. Look what I did there. (laughs) <laughs> or stone plumbing. Okay, so British buildings and villas, there's quite a few of them that are still standing. Uh, or not still standing, but still we still know a lot about. And that's because they've been fairly thoroughly excavated. Tim, generally, a building would have been stone built with a timber frame on a masonry footing. So what we're looking at now is mostly footings. Mm-hmm. If you see Roman buildings, what you're looking at is hopefully a mosaic floor, maybe a foot of wall, and then the footings. But that's how people are basing it off. But that's in England, and generally Roman culture spread pretty thickly throughout the Roman community. So it wasn't bastardized. So you can look at Roman villas just outside Rome and extrapolate pretty quickly. Oh, they're very similar. Yeah. It's not like they got to Britain and they were suddenly like, we're going to do mosaics, but we're going to do them very differently. Yeah, exactly. Or we're going to do them with mud instead of tile or whatever. And in that, they weren't necessarily designed for the British lifestyle, British climate. So it's one of the major reasons why they were pretty much abandoned once the Romans. Romans left. So... I haven't read through these notes in about three weeks, so let's see how I do. You've never read through these, except for when you were doing the research. And when I did the podcast the first time. You do this with notes? (laughs) 
I know. I look at Ben's notes. Oh, this is another tangent. I look at Ben's notes for his podcast, and it's just like inane scribbling. And I'm like, how do you do two and a half hours like this? Check out the Swingdom on Spotify and Apple and the other one. It's really professional. And on YouTube. Go subscribe. Okay. Uh, no, whereas I have, I think, 10 pages of like typed and research notes here. So, villas. Generally, they were tiled roofs, mosaic floors, underfloor heating, wall plaster, glazed windows, and cellars. Many had integral or separate suites of bathrooms, and they were arranged around a courtyard and a complex of paddocks, pens, yards, and features such as vegetable plots, granaries, threshing floors, wells, and hearths, all approached by tracks leading from the surrounding fields. They were constructed from the 1st to the 4th century. Basically, since the Romans arrived, Till when they left. Mm -hmm. They peaked in the third century, which is again when the Romans were at their peaks here. There are four to that one thousand examples of Roman villas in England. Forty one thousand. Four hundred. Four. So four sorry. Four hundred <laughs> to one thousand examples of recorded villas. I'm just just curious. Mm -hmm. How did they get confused about six hundred villas? <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. We will go into that because we will do another podcast specifically on those six hundred villas. No, no, about. we won't. I promise. We're going to get into it now and do it now. Some of them were what's considered very minor villas, which might have only been a few houses, but if they were built in the Roman style, they would still be considered a villa. Yeah, but it's like, oh, the villa. You said villa. Like, it's keep it a villa. A lot of them are very anecdotal. So, for instance, as a kid, everyone used to talk about how I used to ride we had a riding route called the Roman temple. Like you'd ride the Roman temple. And honestly, it was more of an abstract idea that there was a Roman temple there. And when I was about 15, they actually excavated it. And sure enough, found a Roman temple and laid it out. Unbelievably makes me realize how much history is short and passed down. So there's a lot of places, including the place in Cornwall, I think, one of the places in Cornwall, where it was basically local rumor had it that there was a Roman villa there. It wasn't necessarily recorded or excavated, but it looks to be about the right place. People think there's a Roman villa there, and they've just not got around to digging it up yet. I know we're going to go into some specific British Roman villa examples, and I know at least one of them falls into that category. The Roman villas weren't just, it wasn't just about housing. It wasn't just about housing the family. It would have housed slaves, it would have housed extended family, servants, estate workers, and they weren't just for living in, they were built for showing off. They would have entertained clients there, and certainly the front few rooms, which we'll get into in a minute, would have been very specifically designed and built to show off someone's status so that you would want to do business with them. Mm -hmm. The one of the major reasons why villas are, I guess, a little controversial and why there's probably this big discrepancy is because religion was a really important thing in this era. And most of these villas, if Rome is to go in, to go by, would have had chapels in the villa. But it makes it very hard to distinguish when you get further down the road. Were these villas villas or were they places of worship? So if were they designed in a very similar way. Honestly, and uh, yes, and, and a lot of them seem to have been uh, converted, basically. Sometimes they might have been a church, or sometimes they might have been a house, oh, and they might have been just... cross-purposed. Okay. So it's quite hard for people to figure that out. And you've got to think of a monastery. 
right? You've got monks living, they're entertaining people, they're worshipping there. Technically, that is a place of worship, not mm -hmm. a villa, but actually the house itself would have operated in almost exactly the same way as a villa would have done. Yeah. So that is quite... And, and religion itself changed massively in this period. Mm -hmm. So in Great Whitcomb, for example, may have been a center for pagan water culture with, and then there's another villa which we're going to go into, which is Lullingstone, which provides a lot more evidence for Christianity, including a room specifically devoted to Christian observance. Did you say horticulture or water culture? Water culture. Water cult. Pagan Wa a water, water cult. cult. Oh. So they were, um, so you see this a lot a in time team. They will go to a river and be able to find a whole load of stuff that's been sacrificed in a spring. Oh, that's okay. Kind of like um, we talked about on Legendary Tales with Pegasus and this idea that wherever Pegasus struck his foot was where a spring sprung, yeah. a spring sprung a up. A spring sprung. A spring sprung. And that, that would have been the home of the... Nymphs? Yes. What's the word? Muses. Yeah. So... Okay. So I didn't realize of, that paganism, I mean, I, I knew that in that culture they had several deities, yeah. but never that they were like, well, we're like the water sect or... Yeah, so it group. would have been just like just like the Romans and the Greeks, really. Okay. They had different gods that oh. were responsible for different areas. I also misunderstood you. I thought you said horticulture. Oh, yeah. So we went down a sign you didn't even want to go down. Nope. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's go with an actual layout. What it... Like, physically, if you were visiting this villa, what could you expect to see? Mm -hmm. And, again, let me be real clear that not, obviously not every single villa sits exactly into this thing. But Vitreus is one of the people who was an architectural writer of the time, and he provided a whole load of information on potential configurations of Domus. Domus, that's the Roman word for a house. Sorry. Like domicile. Like domicile, domesticity. 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 I think they would have had a... And dyslexia domicide. strikes again. And it's domicide? Yeah. Death of a house. <laughs> just, so, just kill your houses. Just bleep and murder um, <laughs> And, okay, so he was the person that we're going to kind of base what these would have looked like, along with the obviously on-the-ground stuff. Major room was the atrium, and it served as the focus of the entire house. It would have been the center of the house, social and political life. The male head of household, obviously, because, you know, women um, would receive. Because, you know, women. <laughs> well, because women didn't get a shot at this point. Okay. Okay. So the atrium was a room where invited guests and clients would wait and spend time. It was also the room on which the house would lav a house owner would lavish the most attention and funds. So this is going to be the room with the epic. Mosaic, trees, fountains, fountains, trees, and in fact, a lot of them were designed with a hole in the roof. Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, yeah, you remember me saying this last time. How stupid houses were! <laughs> how stupid houses were designed by the Romans. Um, so there were a few different types of atrium configurations: uh, the Tuscan atrium, the terrestrial atrium, and the Corinthian atrium. The Tuscan form had no columns, so it required that the rafters carried the way to the ceiling. Both the terra style and the Corinthian style had columns. And obviously the Romans were the people to invent archways and bring columns into popular culture. Big into columns. Corinthian atria generally had more columns and were also taller. All three types sported a central aperture in the roof and a corresponding pool set in the floor. The 
It's okay. The aperture in the roof is called a complevium. Complevium? That sounds suitably Latin. That was very Latin, yeah. Um, and allowed light, fresh air, and rain to enter the atrium. Mostly rain. And then the implevium, which is the pool, was necessary to capture any of the rainwater and channel it to an underground system. The water could then be used for household purposes. It wasn't, so, it wasn't just a pool. No, it was actually basically a gigantic rain barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were bathing in it. No, they, well, they were bathing in the, not in the pool in the atrium, though. Okay. They, that, remember, they had underground water. They had Yeah. So it would have actually then flowed away from there to be used in the household. So really modern in the sense of compared to what Brits were doing mm-hmm. at this point. So you go in, you see the atrium. You're going to be totally wowed. Yeah, by okay? the way. This is this is the room that is going to make you feel very small, intimidated. It would also potentially have shrines, so you would actually know what the religion of the person's household that you were entering at that point was. Uh, funeral masks of the family's dead ancestors, because you know nothing says party. And off the atrium might have been bedchambers for guests, the office of the patriarchal family. And which was known as the tablinarum. Tablinarum? Okay. And it would have been basically where you would have actually written stuff and done, had your safe and things like that. I'm saying this because when Pompeii exploded, exploded, they actually managed to find these with the safe intact and writing implements there and actually intact. Medieval, not medieval, Roman black boxes. Yep, exactly. So, so beyond the atrium were the more private parts and they would have been built around a courtyard, which, as we've talked about, could have had a garden, fountains, or even a functioning kitchen garden. Obviously, the more money the family had, the more the courtyard would have been a display versus a functioning uh, piece of land. And much like Hampton Court Palace, um, which you can see, there was the same idea that came through, I imagine, even to the way that Buckingham Palace is laid out now, which is the first rooms that you entered were for everybody. And the further you went, the more, well, certainly in Hampton Court, the further you went, the closer you got to the king's private residences, which meant you were more important. I imagine it's slightly different here, which was the further you went, the more intimately you knew the family. So slaves, servants, or the family itself. And it wouldn't just be the one family that was living there. There would be a patriarchal family, but that, say, their daughter had got married or their son had got married and they brought in, there might have been several family groups living in. One villa. Okay, so the arrangement of this would vary depending on the size of the house itself, the courtyard, and what was off it would vary depending on the house itself. Like there would be kitchens, bedrooms, slave quarters, latrines and baths, a dining room, the trichium, which is like the famous place where they would then go lay down and eat elaborate dinner parties of major stuff and eat until they threw up. And by the way, the vomitorium, not named after the place that you would go vomit, just putting that out there. It would also be a place for discussion, philosophical dialogues, um, interest in astrology, writing. It was really the the atrium was the place of business and the dining room was the place of culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those invited to the dinner party would usually be close family and friends and it was usually the second most decorated room after the atrium with wall paintings, artwork. They were also arranged according to a specific formula that gave privileged places to those of higher rank. 
So the closer you were to the patriarch of that family, the more important you were. Proximity is always important. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of very specific British examples of thought management. So let's talk about some very specific British examples of palaces. And the one that probably is most famous in England is the Fishbourne Palace, which is in size-wise approximate to Nero's Golden House in Rome, which is one of the biggest buildings in Rome. And it closely mirrors the basic organization of the Dominus Flavor, Lava, in the, on the Palatine Hill in Rome. It is by far the largest Roman residence known north of the Alps, so not just in England. And just to put it in perspective, at 500 feet square, it has a larger footprint than Buckingham Palace. 500 feet square? 150 meters square. Oh, that's way different than 500 feet square. Did I square. leave a zero off there? No, no, you said, you said 500 feet squared, and then you said 150 meters squared. That's what I've written down here, but I know nothing about sizes, so I don't know what that means. Whichever's bigger. It was bigger. No. Well, it's bigger than Buckingham Palace. Maybe they were talking about, like, the Atrium? like the footprint. Yeah. Like, I imagine Fishburne probably had a bigger footprint, but the actual square footage is different because Buckingham Palace can go up four levels or five levels. That is very true. Didn't you say the word footprint? No, I didn't. Oh. I think I said, no, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. That it has a larger footprint than Buckingham Palace. Okay, so I got this information off Wikipedia. Wikipedia may be wrong. No, that's correct. The, the, the footprint could be bigger than Buckingham Palace. We're moving on now. Okay. Let's move on to the owners of the palace because you would think that something this big, and this is one of the big issues that we have with this time, is that we've got quite a lot of on-the-ground history, but you would think that something this big would be very clear who the owner was because you would surely record who lived in the biggest house in England at that point. Mm-hmm. Debatable. Well, and it is debatable because they didn't. I live in the biggest house in Hennick and nobody has recorded that yet. No, that's true. Except the, for this podcast. And the council. And the council. <laughs> Your tax place. The first accepted theory, or the major accepted theory, uh, is one from Barry Cunliffe. And it is that the early phase of the palace was the residence of Tiberius Claudius Togimbinus, a pro-Roman local chieftain who was installed as a king of a number of territories following the first stage of the king conquest. Togidambinus is known from a reference to his loyalty and from an inscription commemorating a temple dedicated to Neptune and Minerva found near Chichester. Another theory is that it was built by another native, Salius Lucullus, a Roman governor of Britain in the late 1st century, who may have been the son of the British prince, Amadeus. There are also other options, which is that it could have been Verkia, a British client king, or Tiberius Claudius Catarus, whose gold signet ring was discovered nearby in 1995. These are all client kings. Most of these are client kings. I don't think anyone really believes that. Did we go over client kings? Yeah, Several we times, did. Yeah. They're, I was just making sure, just for some, maybe somebody's just the, picking up on the podcast today. They're the kings of a particular era that would have paid tributes to Rome and taxes to Rome in exchange for protection from Rome um, and uh, against the other tribal kingdoms that maybe hadn't 
gone into Rome. Okay, so the villa itself was built in the first century, but it was extensively remodeled early in the second century and maybe even subdivided into two more separate villas with the addition of bath suites. A Medusa mosaic was laid over an earlier one in the center of the North Wing in about 100 AD. So this is one of those palaces that's had huge amounts of redevelopment mm. over the time. It was redeveloped again in the late 3rd century, and the final um, alterations were actually not completed when it was destroyed by a fire in 270 AD. The damage was too great to repair, and the palace was abandoned and later dismantled, i.e. robbed. It is not known whether the fire was accidental or set by coastal raiders, because one of the things we're going to go into next week is the raiders that started coming in and really harassing the Romans and making their life much more difficult as Rome started to as Rome started to remove themselves from England, the raiders were coming in and basically destroying all the Roman property. The raiders of the Stark. No. <laughs> no, the Saxons. The raiders of the The Vikings. The Vikings. So I was trying to think of something that went with Lost Ark. Oh, okay. The Lost Rome. The, the tree bark. Well, so it was a super, from what they can figure out, it was a super expensive palace with wall paintings, moldings, and they reckon it must have actually been built by foreign craftsmen. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a poxy um, British made palace. They brought in the Romans to do it. So it is definitely kind of. I don't know. It's the best standing example of what we've got to offer at Rome at this point or what Rome had to offer England at this point. So we're going to talk a little bit more about some other less well-known Roman villas in England. I just, it's, we went on this tangent a little bit in the last one and I feel like it's a really important tangent to go on again. And as Adam just said when he was looking up Fishbourne for trying to figure out how many square feet it was, these villas are really hurting right now, as are many of the historic landmarks in England. They are losing a huge amount of their tourism and their funding that comes in. Most of them are reliant on ticket sales, and people aren't going. So while I truly believe that as soon as you can, you should get out and support your local pub, um, you should also take some time and go and visit one of these things that we're talking about, one of these sites that we're talking about. Spend your money in the local pubs, go to the local restaurants, and spend your money at the local villas. Weird thing to say. And a political stance that I never thought I would really have. <laughs> go okay. donate money. All right. So the Mongers Theater. That's the next palace we're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to give you a rundown of a few other palaces that you should visit once we're out of lockdown. My meat market. Meatmonger, because the, cause I, I've called the Fishbourne Palace Fishmonger's oh. Cavern. I thought you were going to call it the Lawrence Fishbourne Palace. That's pretty good, too. But I like mine more. All right. So if you are in the Isle of Wight, you should go and visit the Braiding Roman Villa. Why, you ask? Because by the early 4th century, this high-status house was completed. It is a winged corridor villa, pretty common in southern Britain, and it provided separate living accommodation for the owner and the rest of the family, together with spaces for entertaining guests, just like we've been talking about. It has been changed and renovated and adapted over the hundreds of years that it was lived in, including removing and moving internal walls, because we all like a little open plan, and adding new mosaics. It also has a mosaic of Medusa, which apparently is a fairly common theme. And Medusa was 
as we know from the Pegasus episode of Medusa pre or post terrifying incident? Uh, post the rape. Ah, yes. Um, and she was originally a beautiful maiden, but because she actually, I have to say that this person classed it as was wooed by Poseidon <sighs> inside Minerva's temple. The furious Minerva transformed her hair into serpents and made her face so terrible that one look would turn the viewer to stone. However, they also use Medusa as a symbol to ward off evil and protect homes. So that's why you see it in so many of the palaces. So I carved it into all of your historic walls. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks. Uh, Big man. This is, was discovered in 1811, who 200 years ago, George Tupper was plowing his field and uncovered the dining room water basin. And it was originally built in the first century, but its earliest structural remains are around 190. It's a much simpler palace than, or villa than the palace we talked about beforehand. Um, I kind of like Bigna for a couple of different reasons. One, it is, I would say, much more of a regular house than maybe Fishbone Palace, which was certainly that belonging to someone of huge high status and importance. But also, um, it was one of the oldest Roman villa kind of tourist attractions. In It opened in 1814, and in its first nine months of being open, it nearly had a 1,000 video, uh, vis videos, visitors. YouTube. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I will say that the Braiding Roman Villa, if you go on YouTube, has some amazing renderings of how the house sort of looked um, and gives you some historic uh, walkthroughs. So the Tuppers, who were the people to discover it 200 and something years ago, uh, there was no further work undertaken on it until there was a pretty extensive excavation in the 70s and 80s. But the Tuppers still actually own it. So, guys, when we talk about going to visit these villas, you're not talking about things being owned by the National Trust, where this is a family farm. It really is a it's under control of the trustees of the Tupper family. And it really is a very much a mom and pop like mm -hmm. villa and house. And it's worth visiting. Chadworth Roman Villa is another one. And it's a second century AD villa. And it's a pretty simple structure. And again, it reached its heyday when about all of these villas did, which is in the kind of 350 to 380 CE. And by the time it got to that point, it was a place of wealth, luxury, and comfort. It has a ton of stunning mosaics, a huge bathhouse, and lots of uh, features made of marble. So these are things that you would have usually reserved for an imperial family. So it was obviously by this point someone who was fairly um, fairly heavily high status. Yeah. So heavily the, wealthy. Heavily wealthy. Weighed down by straight cash. So one of the things about Tedworth is that they do not have any agricultural buildings discovered there. This is a strange question. Yeah. Did they have credit in Roman times? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, the Romans really liked the idea of the Brits borrowing stuff on credit. Because mm -hmm. then they were indebted to the Roman banks. What do you think the interest rate was? I'm thinking it was probably paid in blood. Like if you defaulted on your loan, I'm thinking they probably just. Do you think it was like three to five percent, or you think it was like fifteen hundred percent? I wish we still paid in blood. You think it was like payday loans, or do you think it was more like an actual bank? I think it was probably more like an actual bank because 
people took them up on it. You think you got a better rate on your savings account than you do now? Probably. You the rate right on your savings account you now is about all zero. of your gold under your straw bed. Yeah. So no, <laughs> your interest Still a, rates maybe great. potentially a better rate than now. Um, <laughs> keep all my gold. Please don't come rob me. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more extensively about the next villa, which is Little Cove Roman Villa. It's a Roman winged corridor villa, and why we're going to talk about it a little bit um, that it is one of these ones that is a religious complex too. We talked a little bit. And we're going to talk about religion. Next two episodes are going to feature in some particular order, but I haven't decided how yet, uh, where religion was at this point. So the move from paganism to Christianity. We are going to talk about the end of the Roman Empire and start the invasions. We're also going to talk about the legend of Arthur. So there's a few things, but very much religion is going to be something that we have to address before we... It's a huge part of really everything that summed up the rest of British history was trying to figure out what religion we were. Um, the settlement may have begun life as a short-lived military establishment guarding a crossing of the River Kennet in Wiltshire. It was replaced by a local circular farming hut around the AD 70 AD, and then 50 years later, a rectangular Roman building. So pretty much how you would expect something of this period to look. It, I will say Little Cut to me, its history is vindicative of how I imagine of those six, seven hundred villas that we know are in England. This is probably the evolution that the majority of them would have had. Activity at the villa involved baking ovens, malting tanks, grinding stones. After another 50 years, this was replaced by a large two-story winged corridor villa with integral bath suite. This building went through a number of changes over the subsequent centuries, notably a major rebuild in 270. So 270, 300 CE is really when the Romans were at their peak in England. So a lot of these buildings were becoming showpieces of what the Roman Empire could do. And that's why I was wondering, like, if they built it on credit or, like, did they have to amass wealth? And then I get that the Romans had been in... England for 270-ish years, 300 years at this point. Um, So, like, at at what point did, like, the Romans' wealth start making its hands into the way, making its way into the hands of the Britons? Almost immediately. That's what the Romans wanted. They were like, this is silver, this is worth something. Here, I want this for that pelt. The Roman really, the one of the Romans, yeah. One of the major ways, and tin down here, tin. Deer meat. One of the major ways the Romans conquered was by tying trade. They wanted people's wealth to be tied because, honestly, at the end of the day, you might fight for your people's morals are a lot, generally a lot less specific when there's money involved. Looser. Yeah. Um, So you're saying they would come in, basically turn them into indentured servants? No, well, client kings were, were, the money was going both ways. The trade would be good. They would have a lot of soldiers to feed. That would increase agriculture. They wanted the Romans there. And that's one of the reasons why we think that, and actually, funnily enough, I talked this through with a guy from Keystone a lot this last week about his theories on Roman activity down here. He actually has a degree in archaeology. And I think we both very much agree that the lack of fighting down here doesn't really indicate the lack of Romans. It's much more indicative of the amount of trade that this area of England was used to doing. Mm-hmm. And consequently, when the Romans came in to the 
Brits of the Southwest, very much it was just a. So you're saying that another another group of people to trade with. So, so the South of England was already used to trading with Europe. Yeah, because it was so close by boat. Yeah. Whereas the northern parts of England and northern Europe, the Nordic countries, were not used to trading. No, they were a lot more warrior-like. Yeah, they were. Okay. So, reason why there's so much written history of Scotland and northern England and what was going on up there is because that's where the battles were. That's what the Romans are obsessed with. Trading with other countries, trading with other people was just a day-to-day thing. He owed me four and a half percent in taxes. Yeah, that to them was just (laughs) a day-to-day thing, and it didn't, they didn't, the the tax percentage (laughs) rates of, of, your I'm saying my rate. mortgage rate is 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 what it is, and I just want to know <laughs> my mortgage rate. Exists. I want to know if I would have been better off as a Roman or better off now. I will try and find out for you next week. So, the Romans were definitely interested in what was going on in the south of England. They wanted the tin very specifically, but the south of England wanted to sell them the tin. Yeah, this was not a case of taking it. The Romans were pretty good about paying for what they wanted. They were like, "We're catching loads of tuna. We need cans." Cans for tuna. Wow. That's a stretch. Tin cans. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. We Let's got, go back to Little Cairo Roman Villa. Beans. <laughs> we need cans for beans. So Little Cup Roman cans. Villa. Tin cans. <laughs> <laughs> little Cup Roman Villa. Around 360 CE. They the, definitely had crushed tomatoes. <laughs> the agricultural activity seems to have ended and the complex started to require a religious use. A large barn was converted into a courtyard. A very early triconch hall was built along with its own bath suite. Upon its floor was now laid a famous Orpheus mosaic, uh, first discovered in 1727. And the mosaic is usually interpreted as a pagan, obviously, pagan religious term, but not only including Orpheus, but Bacchus and Apollo. So... It was a cult center for multiple gods, not just one god. Coming back to what you were asking for earlier, about earlier, Adam. Was Jesus there? No. Oh, pagan stuff, bro. Pagan. No, I get that. I'm just saying, like... Also, they didn't do mosaics of Jesus, really, did they? No, there's not... No, there isn't a lot. Um, they were like, we actually knew that dude. Yeah. Or we're just going to do a statue <laughs> of him on the cross instead. By about 400 CE, uh, most of the buildings had fallen into decay or were demolished. Which coincides with the legalization against paganism. So it was a pagan, uh, basically, the way that this building evolved. It was huts. Mm-hmm. It then became a Roman building. It became a Roman villa. Then it got used for a pagan center of worship. Paganism was made illegal. So therefore, it wasn't needed anymore and it was demolished. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that, so this place was, is that evidence that it was owned by a Brit then, or like li- was occupied by a Brit? Because were the Romans doing a lot of pagan stuff while they were? Over yeah, the here? Romans, the Romans were into paganism too at the beginning. Okay, and actually, I believe like the Brits had... fairly happily adopted a lot of the Christian stuff. So no, they just probably couldn't really care less, could they? <laughs> but the last thing they were worried about, yeah, they were worried about were... feeding less than farm, yeah. uh, you know, farming less than religion. They've also identified two post-Roman, or as they know in history, it's called sub-Roman, timber structures identified on the site. It's confusing. I know. So I'm going to call it post-Roman. It's below it's Roman, stupid. yeah. Stupid. Yeah, morons. How dare you classify Stup- stupidly, vilifying people so you don't know. So kind of that building really 
typifies how hard it is to identify what's a villa mm -hmm. versus what's a Roman a, a center of religion. Okay, so that was our buildings around the country. We went to Wiltshire and Sirencester and Chichester. We went to all those places. All these places. Physically. Uh-huh, in your imagination. This episode was filmed before lockdown. Yep. Okay, so now we're going to go into Cornwall, because that's what we're interested in, really. Well, Cornwall and Devon. Yeah, Devon. Um, Devon. Cornwall does their cream tea wrong. Ah, uh, Adam, the new Brit who has such strong opinions. The, the most British... Okay, They're, so which way is, which way? Isn't it, I, isn't it jam first here? I think it's jam first, then cream. I think it's jam first, then cream in Devon. This and is then, the thing I don't get. Why is it called cream tea? But it's, it's butter a, and then jam if you're doing butter. Because it's a biscuit. But it's, like, to me, cream is a liquid. Yes. Not well, no, because no. double cream is like. I would say double cream. No, that's what, cream that's what, tea. It's like it's clotted cream. You make it in the oven in the longhouse. Which we will be doing. Well, it's basically like whipped cream without all the sugar. Yeah, exactly. So, Ew, why would you put that on a biscuit? Because you got the raspberry jam for the sugar. Sounds like a lot. Have you ever had it's it? It's exactly no, what. Oh, I, okay. Of course, I haven't. It's what I feed you for dinner every day, but without a meringue. <laughs> ah, it's a that's double cream. That's not clotted cream. No, but clotted oh, no, cream and double do... cream is the same. Different mate. No, it's not the same thing. I didn't say that. I'm really sorry. It's not the same thing. What I do is whip Human. double cream. Ah, okay. Um, okay, Cornwall. And the reason why Home we're going to Cornwall. Doc Martin. The reason why we're going to Cornwall is because there are a couple of examples in Cornwall and there's a lot less in Devon. Devon. Because so, they fell over a lot faster. They were more easily or just people haven't excavated down here. I just think people haven't excavated across Dartmoor as much. So Oh, because you can't. Here we go. The inhabitants of Britain who dwell, and this, I think, is an actual quote from one of the primary sources, because I should have written that down, but, oh, yeah, I did. Uh, this is Dorius Scilius said this. Mm. Mm -hmm. The inhabitants of Britain who dwell around the predominantly known as Bellarium, the modern Cornwall, are especially hospitable to strangers and have adopted a civilized manner of life because of their intercourse with merchants of other people. They, it is, who works the tin, treating the bed which bears in an ingenious manner. This bed, being like a rock, contains earthy seams, and in them the workers quarry the ore, which they then melt down and cleanse of the impurities. What, then they work the tin into pieces the size of knuckle bones and convey it onto an island which lays off Britain and is called Icus. Now it's called St. Michael's Mount. For... At the time of ebb and tide, the space between the island and the mainland becomes dry, and they can take the tin in large quantities over to the island in their wagon. So, I think the important thing about this is the two things that interested Romans. One, tin. Tin manufacturing, what we were doing with tin. Money. Um, money. And also, I think it comes back again. Like, they are hospitable, especially hospitable to strangers. They didn't immediately call have, to arms. No, and have adopted a manner of life because they're a, a, a civilized manner of life. So basically, the Romans didn't feel that they had much work to do down here. Yeah, they weren't a threat. They could come they in here, trade boring. happily, and the people here were all living in a way that they were all right with. So whatever. Whatever. They just left so, everyone yeah, to we'll it. Just and continue took their trading tip. with everybody and then also you. Yeah. So there's uh, quite a lot of Roman milestones that have been found in Cornwall. And two of them are near Tintagel Castle, one at Myhean Farm, and two more near St. Michael's Mount, which obviously was a big Roman place because it was written about it. One of the milestones at Tintagel, 
impacle, is inscribed with the words Imperator Caesus Linctus, who was the emperor from 308 to 313. So right in that period of kind of peak Roman peak Romanness. Um, and there's a few other ones um, that are around there, kind of dating from 200 ish to like mid 300 ish. Uh, there's two major bits that we're going to talk about. One is going to be a Roman fort, and then the other one is going to be a Roman villa called Magda Farm. Magda Farm. Okay. Let's talk about the Roman villa first, uh, the Roman fort first. Um, a first century Roman fort was excavated at Nanstalen in 1653 by Eileen Fox and Professor Bill Ravenhill. Until recently, it was the second Roman fort in Cornwall, but following a geophysical survey of another Roman fort, another Roman fort has been found 5.6 miles away uh, near Restom Castle. However, Nalston is the most excavated of the ones. Um, it was probably a very forward oper operating base and was strategically well-placed for Roman presence to be felt. However, the Roman legion at Exeter was withdrawn and with no uh, in 75 CE and with no Roman town and I'm saying this with big quotes around it because this is changing all the time and we're realizing this is no longer the case hmm. in fact when I recorded this three weeks ago there was less evidence of Roman towns than there are now when we record this three weeks from now when the audio goes bad again yeah well I'll be able to tell you about the city they discovered just south of <laughs> uh no um in Hennock in Hennock so it says here, Cornwall settled down to four centuries of nominal Roman rule, which I think kind of sums up really what was going on here. It's just the Cornish. Yeah. It, and, and to be honest, at this point, there was no Cornwall in the sense of like, so it was Devon and Cornwall, the Southwest. It was the Southwest. All right. We're going to tell you a little bit about Eileen Fox, because I am all for telling you about women that did stuff that was slightly beyond Big what would have been expected. Babes. I like that. Big Bad History Babes. Now, that should be another podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> the daughter of Solicitor. She was educated at Chinthurst School in Surrey and later at Downhouse School in Kent. She remained at the school after it moved to Berkshire. I don't understand why the school moved. Or how. Or how. <laughs> how she stayed in Kent. And then she went on to read English at Cambridge. After her graduation in 1929, she was working as a volunteer on the excavation of Richborough, Kent, she spent the following winter at the British School in Rome. In 1932, she excavated at Henry Hill Fort, Devon and Mean Hill in Hampshire. In 1933, she married Cyril Fox, thus becoming Eileen Fox, uh, the director of the National Museum in Wales, who three, she had three sons. Good Lord, she was a career woman with many children. Good on her. Uh, the Foxes together excavated prehistoric and Roman sites throughout UK, um, although she actually continued to lead her own excavations independently. She was one of the few women archaeologists to lead excavations around England. Cool. Yeah. Um, she's pretty badass. Um, her notable, most notable achievement was three seasons of excavation at Roman Exeter following the damage from World War II. Uh, she stayed there until, and then she took up a lectureship at Exeter for the University College of South Wales, and she stayed there until her retirement in 1971. She undertook excavations in southwest England and shed new light on prehistoric occupation of Dartmoor, Iron Age hill forts in the region, and Roman military presence in Cornwall. Perfect. That's what we want. She is it. 
in 19... Where is she now? Dead? I'm going to assume she's dead. <sighs> but it doesn't make her any less badass. She is probably, well, rolling in her grave as I mispronounce every place that she's ever excavated. Spinning. Yeah. She's changing the direction that the earth is moving. She's yeah. dancing. She's not. Her husband got knighted in 1935. I'm going to guess to know small part of the work she did. So then she became known as Lady Fox, which has got to be one of the best names ever. Like it. It sounds like a... Well, there's isn't there Mr. Fox? It's a good drag name. Lord Fox and Lady Fox. Well, Mr. Fox is, is the Wes Anderson... Well, it's not the Wes Anderson movie. It's the Roald Dahl book, isn't it? The fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and Sorry. Then, and then she got an honorary doctorate from Exeter in 1985. So she became Dr. Lady Fox, Oof. which sounds sure. like someone in a either a, like a... PhD or MD? PhD. PhD. <laughs> like it would be any different. <laughs> Those two things are drastically different. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> what a so, What a total history, babe. I someone refer to them <laughs> as from now on. That's so sexist. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, calling people babe. I'm going to call you babe from now on. Only if you bring me some. All right. Some so tins, Magna Farm. Some tins of wine. Magna Farm. <laughs> Uh, the monument includes a minor Roman British villa. I will say that I know very little about it because it is a minor British villa. It's not one of these big, like, fishbone ones. But it is in Cornwall, so therefore it's important. It's like a three of ten. Mm -hmm. uh, the villa survives as an entirely buried feature. So even if you went to go look at it, it's basically a field. X-ray vision. It's a small winged corridor. It has a small winged corridor in Chapelfield. Uh, three periods of construction have been recognized from the excavation. The initial building was constructed in the second half of century, uh, of second second half of the second century CE, and was enlarged later on. It was reoccupied by squatters in seven in two hundred seventy CE. I'm on board with that. I feel like I knew that you did because we recorded this podcast three weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's because you're a genius. Yep. Um and. Occupation uh, of the squatter phase probably continued until about the 4th century. From what I could figure out, the reason they think it was a squatter phase is because there was no building improvements. But was, how long was it? Did you say 50 years, 50 or 60 years? No, uh, probably 100 years. That's a long time for people to just be... Not making any building improvements. It was the so same person. One person. It was that guy, Tim. Everybody knows Tim. Yeah, Tim, Tim the squatter. Tim the tin miner. <laughs> Tim the tin man squatter. <laughs> um, you got fish. I got tins. So. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> you got tins. There's a recycling center down the road. No, there's not. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk. I know I said we were going to talk about these. We're going to talk about one more, which is cow stock. Cow stock. Cow stock. Cow. Cow. C-A-L. Cow. Cow stock. Cow. It is on the border between Devon and Cornwall. We can claim it. Yeah, it's sure. Devons. Exactly. I don't think Calstock, whatever that is. Well, when you say it's on the border between, like. I didn't Google Maps. It's it. not 50 50. There's no way it's 50 50. <laughs> it's like directly on the border. Then it's ours. We're taking <laughs> yeah. it. Um, Border's just going to do that. There's going to be a little bump. <laughs> so this was originally discovered because they were actually looking at royal silver mines, which are a lot later, like. 12 to 1600 century. That's what they were looking at this area for. It's too far in the future for us. Way, way far in the future. <laughs> what and happened if they like were digging for tin and found silver? I don't think they cared about silver in the Roman period, really. It doesn't really, Sound it wouldn't, like you know, amalgamized with tin in the same way, though. Um, you think they just burnt it and threw it away? Well, this is, so this is one of the newer, newer ones, right? 
in 2006, they were doing some geophers on it. Mm-hmm. And they started looking for the medieval stuff. They were looking for medieval. I don't think they had any idea that they were about to run into a whole load of Roman stuff. Okay. And they started in, they noticed some things that were anomalies for what they were looking for. So in autumn of 2007, they did a magtrometer survey, um, with which was conducted on a larger area, trying to find the furnaces associated with the medieval industry. And it re- revealed the distinctive outline of a Roman fort enclosed by two ramparts and two ditches. Significantly, a number of anomalies also hinted at the potential sites of smelting furnaces known as bowls. So what they did was start excavating what they thought was a Roman fort and they thought were medieval mining activity. But as they started digging further, they actually started to realize that not only were the ramparts Roman, but that many of the mines could have actually been associated with Roman activity too. Ah, Trixie Romans. It's one of only three such sites known in the country. And the dig leader, who is a guy named Chris Smart from, guess which university? Uh, Time team. Yale. Exeter. Oh, damn it. Um, You got us. Yeah. (laughs) Every time. Says that they are going to continue to try and do further analysis of the deep pits, which are connected by arch tunnels, which is why they think it was Roman. So the dig sites are unique. Like are are the, the, the the mining, mining I think the mining activity. Why would that be unique? Why would that be uniquely because of the archways? They think it's. Yeah. So there's obviously the mining wasn't unique to Cornwall or Devon. Like they were doing that all the time. I think it might have been that this was, I think that this might have been what might have been more unique about it. And this is where I'm, reading into it and, and guys i'm not like obviously i cannot do the research that chris smart has done on this. don't let so. her fool you doris omniscient <laughs> um is that i think maybe a lot of the mines that they found in the southwest have been british mines gotcha whereas this was i think a roman mine okay i think a lot of the mines were british and they were buying the mined goods off the brits okay i think that this may have been a Roman mine and Roman controlled by the fort. Mined by Romans. Mined. Or by the whatever. Mined by the slaves or whatever that the Romans had. So they are still obviously doing work on this. This was only in 2007, which in terms of archaeology is yesterday. Um, And the dig leader said that the mine was an unexpected bonus and that there would be further radiocarbon dating, which will confirm whether the furnace is Roman or medieval. And they say at this point, it does appear that it was a focus of Roman industrial activity. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting, and and that is, again, west of Exeter. Right, where they thought it stopped, right, for all the Yeah, I think we've talked about this a lot, which is this idea that all roads led to Exeter and stopped. Mm -hmm. And that... It's just so hard to believe when you think about how... Why would the Roman, even, why would they stop? I think even when you even if you have menial knowledge about Roman activity in England, you're like, there's a lot of island left. Yeah. When you get to Exeter. There's no reason they would just be like, oh, that's we're done. And there's not any fighting. There's no, no evidence that they yeah. were kept out. But that would also make sense as to why it's hard to find mm-hmm. a lot of activity, right? Um so we talked a little bit about Tintagel Tintagel Castle. Yeah, earlier um, in this episode, right? Yeah, just like two minutes ago. There is evidence of some maybe Roman stuff going on there, but also the Arthur surround uh, the um, legends surrounding King Arthur. 
So we will be coming back to there particularly in the next couple of weeks. But it really, all of these things really just prove that Bodmin Moor, Dartmoor and Devon, uh, Bodmin Moors in Cornwall were much more populous than they previously thought. Mm -hmm. These were not empty wastelands of nothingness. Um, they have been doing the, oh God, and every time I forget the acronym because I'm too dyslexic for it. Lard. Lard, lead. Lieb. Lidar. Lidar, there we go. Fiddler. Lidar. So they have been doing this lidar looking at these different sites. And that's what I'm meaning by like in three weeks, this has changed. When I initially wrote this, it said so far less than a tenth of the material available has been studied, but already 30 previously unknown settlements believed to date from between 300 BCE and 300 CE have been found, as more, well as more than 20 miles of Roman road. I've got to assume that that number has increased exponentially. Mm. If that was what was found in the first three or four weeks of lockdown, imagine what they found in the next three or four weeks of lockdown. And once we're open, wow. I'm really hoping that there's the funding available. And guys, I do understand that I'm really, really very much in belief that if the funding should not prioritize to the digging up of Roman remains in Dartmoor, they're not going anywhere if they haven't gone anywhere in the last 2000 years. Mm. But I'm really hoping that when the economy recovers and people recover, that being able to dig up some of these sites and actually understand a little bit more about what's going on in Roman Britain west of Exeter is actually a real thing. Yeah. So I have a question. When the Romans started evacuating Britain, yeah. did they leave from the north? And then We will go into it next okay. week. We're going to cover it all next week. If they, yeah. Now that we're done with the Roman villas, when do we get to the Italian villas? <laughs> That were in, in England. Uh-huh. And, and for those that can't see our podcast, Adam just flipped Ben off. Just threw up. Um, I'm okay. just curious. Wretched. All right, guys. So that is all we're bringing you this week. Next week, like I said, I'm thinking we might do religion, but I might take a break and do something Arthurian. Follow us on Instagram. I'm going to post some photos of these staircases that we talked about. And hopefully... You guys will join us next week, and we will be back with a bit more regularity now that I'm feeling like the world isn't burning quite as much. Yep. Don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. And if you get the time and feel like listening to our other podcasts, we've got Legendary, which Adam and... Legendary Tales. Legendary Sorry. Tales. No, that's fine. Uh, where you guys talk about... Cryptids and weird stuff. The and, history behind them. Oh, that's fun. And, and if you're, then Ben. Yeah, if you can't find absolutely anything else to listen to, <laughs> uh, once a week, me and my buddy Gunnar do a podcast called The Swingdom where and we talk all things golf. Even then, I think you should just stare at the wall in your bedroom in complete silence with the lights off. But some of you might be as lucky as I am to have a partner in your life that loves golf, in which case, this is a great way for them to start on podcasts. All right, guys. Yep. Lovely speaking to you. Have a good one. Goodbye. Bye. See you in three weeks.